Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 98. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on December 3rd, 2022, in my bedroom closet in New Orleans. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Until last week's episode, we had last encountered the Spanish project in North America almost a year ago in episode 51, the rediscovery of New Mexico and the last conquistadors, 1580-1610, in which we discuss the various Spanish expeditions north of the Rio Grande after Coronado up to the founding of Santa Fe. That episode is indeed the best prerequisite for this one, but it clocks in at 54 minutes, I believe the longest that I've ever done. And I'm not taskmaster enough to put you through all of that a second time, so I'll summarize it in this episode. Before I get to that, though, I'm a bit taken aback by the realization that on the order of 47 episodes have transpired since we last looked at the American Southwest. That 51st episode ended with the founding of Santa Fe in New Mexico in 1610, at the end of the 12-year entrada led by Don Juan de Añate Salazar, then a high watermark on the timeline in the history of the Americans. For the last 47 or so episodes, apart from a few sidebars, we've been mucking around in the crowded and complicated first third of the 1600s, almost entirely on the eastern seaboard of today's United States. We looked at the exploration of the coast of Maine, the Popham Sagadahawk colony, and Samuel de Champlain's various excursions in New England and into New York. We did 16 episodes on or related to Jamestown and its satellite colonies, another dozen on the background of the Pilgrims in their first years in Massachusetts, and three so far on the Dutch in North America. Technically, we made our way into the 1640s briefly with the ultimate fate of the Lord of Misrule, Thomas Morton. But since we've only touched on the great migration of the Puritans in 1630, we're really only that far along. The good news is that the first 30 or 40 years of the 1600s were, in a genuine sense, foundational. The pace will pick up, at least for a while. My guess is that we will crest the 1700s before the end of the next year. That is 2023. But as always, I follow my muse, so who really knows? This episode looks at the Spanish settlements in New Mexico in the years after 1610, and how the peoples of the Pueblos there contended with the spiritual and cultural demands from the Franciscan friars, who were bent on Christianizing them. This period ran roughly from 1610 to 1680, by the end of which there would be very few people with any memory of the time before the Spanish returned after the long hiatus following Coronado. In 1680, the period would come to an end when the Pueblo tribes revolted and ejected the Spanish entirely from New Mexico. The Spanish would return some years later, but the Pueblo revolt of that year is the only time, with a couple of quibbles, that the Indians ejected an established colony of Europeans from today's United States. The Pueblo Indians were able to accomplish what Opakankanah and King Philip couldn't on the eastern seaboard. We will no doubt do an episode on the Pueblo Revolt of 1680 at some point in the future. 
This episode will describe at least some of the context in which that revolt occurred. The revolt is also important to our understanding of history because it resulted in the destruction of many of the Spanish records from the time. We therefore know what we know about this period from scant surviving documents that perhaps made it to New Spain or even Europe, and especially from archaeology, much of which is of relatively recent discovery. Since it's been almost a year, at least for me, since we were in New Mexico, a quick recap of the timeline couldn't hurt. The Pueblo peoples along the rivers in today's New Mexico had encountered the Spanish in force during the three years of Francisco Vasquez de Coronado's Entrada from 1540 to 1542. Coronado's invasion followed the earlier and almost trivial encounters with Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca and his three comrades, Alonso de Castillo, Andres Durantes, and Esteban, an African who was enslaved to Durantes. Esteban then returned as the point man, scout, and translator for a reconnaissance mission led by the Franciscan friar Marcos de Niza in 1540. As long-standing and attentive listeners will recall, the Coronado invasion ended in failure. Coronado found no cities of gold and stumbled his way into war with at least a dozen of the Pueblos in the region. He eventually retreated back to Mexico, and Spaniards would not return for almost 40 years. By 1580, the Coronado years would have been a story told by old people to the young and fading from human memory. We covered the return in the aforementioned episode on the last conquistadors. Several relatively small Spanish expeditions crossed into the region again about 1580 and the years following. One thing led to another, and in 1598, the Spanish dispatched the substantial entrada of Juan de Iñate, authorized by the Conde Monterrey, who had also underwritten Sebastian Vizcaino's exploration of the California coast, which we discussed last time. That period concluded with Iñate returning home in some measure of disgrace, and the founding of Santa Fe in 1610, three years, after the beginning of Jamestown and 45 long years after the establishment of St. Augustine, Florida. In 1610, those three tiny European dots on the map were the only places in today's United States with European settlers, none with as many as a thousand foreigners. All three dots were stubborn stains to scrub away, at least from the perspective of the Indians. Sir Francis Drake would help enforce the temporary abandonment of St. Augustine in 1586 by burning it to the ground and looting it of everything useful, but the Spanish would quickly return. Paramount Chief Powhatan would drive the English out of Jamestown for two days in 1610, but the lucky arrival of Lord Delaware's fleet would turn the fleeing settlers around at the mouth of the James. It was only in New Mexico in 1680 where the Indians would push the Europeans out entirely for a meaningful period. The Spanish would not return until 1692. By 1610, the Spanish, broadly speaking, had come to think of New Mexico as a material expense and a spiritual opportunity. It was a material expense because there was no evidence of any serious wealth that could be looted or mined, either in New Mexico or farther north. It was a spiritual opportunity, however, because the tribes of the Pueblos were agricultural, settled in place and producing agricultural surpluses. 
Because they were settled in towns, it would be possible to build missions and churches among them. The friars who had started working the region as far back as 1580 saw the opportunity, indeed the requirement, to do exactly that. By ecclesiastical accounts, by 1630 there were 50 friars in the Pueblo region, and they ran 25 missions, encompassing as many as 90 Pueblos. In the words of the great, and it must be said, fraudulent historian of the American Southwest, Herbert E. Bolton, at each mission there were a school and a workshops where the neophytes were taught reading, writing, singing, instrumental music, and the manual arts. Bolton's book, The Spanish Borderlands, a chronicle of old Florida and the Southwest, published 101 years ago, is the starting point for historians of the region, but far from the ending point. Modern scholarship, including a heavy dose of archaeology as opposed to the discovery and interpretation of documents, has unearthed a more complex past. We're going to look at that thematically and drill down on some of the ugly and interesting episodes that most of us don't know anything about. I certainly didn't. Oh, and long-standing and attentive listeners, of course, know why I referred to Herbert E. Bolton as fraudulent. We covered all of that also in December 2021 in an episode called Novo Albion and Drake's Legacy. It was Bolton who was behind that fake plate of brass. And it was Bolton who suppressed Zelia Nuttall's credible challenge to the theory that Drake's Fair and Good Bay was in California. None of that, however, is to deny Bolton his due as one of the path-breaking historians of the American Southwest. Anyway, back to Pueblo country in the years following the founding of Santa Fe. The missions needed converts, both because it was their purpose and because they needed faithful to do the work of building and maintaining churches and schools and so forth. Parallel with the friars and their missions, the Spanish imposed a civil government with a governor and staff and brought colonists to the region. These two Spanish hierarchies, ecclesiastical and civil, could not help but be in competition with each other for Indian labor and loyalty, which was both confusing and annoying for the settled Indians of the region. The Indians of the region were no more unified. Non-agricultural tribes from the east, Apaches and whatnot, would attack the eastern Pueblos in raiding parties, which were meant to grab stuff, and war parties, which were bent on military conquest. The Navajos from the north also pressed down, these tribes would become more powerful as the century wore on because they would acquire horses that would transform their military capabilities. The Spanish, who were dependent on the settled and agricultural Pueblo Indians, became ever more important to the regional defense. Now, dependence is rarely a useful basis for cross-cultural respect, and so it was in New Mexico in the 17th century. The tension would build with overt and covert resistance along the way until the Great Pueblo Revolt of 1680. Because there's so much less accessible historical narrative than in, say, Virginia or Massachusetts or New France during the same period, there are very few of the super detailed stories that have been the stock and trade of this podcast. It's important, though, that we cover this period because it was then and is now an important part of the history of the peoples who live in today's United States, and indeed, 
I've been able to come up with some ugly stories anyway. To set us up, let's turn to another eminent historian of the American Southwest, John Kessel of the University of New Mexico. In his book, Pueblo, Spaniards, and the Kingdom of New Mexico, published in 2008, Kessel introduced the Franciscans beautifully. Quote, Poverty suited the Franciscans. Members of the mendicant Order of the Friars Minor, founded in 13th century Europe by St. Francis of Assisi, Franciscan missionaries throughout Spain's empire received subsidies from the royal treasury. Although Franciscans had accompanied earlier entradas, the friars who came with Oñate saw the world of the Pueblo Indians as a clean slate. Sharing the medieval worldview of the first Franciscans who appeared among the teeming populations of central New Spain in the 1520s, they would do battle with the devil and win the hearts of the native people. As their exclusive ministry unfolded in the distant north, they would be far removed from meddling bishops or competing religious orders. The only Roman Catholic priests in the kingdom, they envisioned a Franciscan city of God on the Rio Grande. None of the several hundred Franciscan friars who served in colonial New Mexico was born in the colony. All were Spaniards, either from the mother country or from some part of the Spanish Indies. The former at times acted superior, and the two groups competed. Because none of the friars could be ordained a Roman Catholic priest until his mid-twenties after years of study in Spain or Mexico, not one grew up among the Pueblo peoples as did the children of the colonists. While most were priests authorized to administer the sacraments of the church, a few came as assisting lay brothers with trades, such as carpentry, horticulture, or medicine. The great majority of New Mexico's missionary friars were humane souls who carried their lonely crosses with devotion and charity, if at times clumsily. Some struggled to establish any rapport with their Pueblo congregations, while others relied on their charisma or ingenuity to endear themselves to the native people. A few proved woefully deviant, sexually or physically abusing their charges. A missionary's effectiveness depended more on his persuasive personality, creativity, and willingness to learn from his neophytes than on formal knowledge of Christian doctrine. Collectively, the friars' insistence that New Mexico existed solely to save Pueblo souls clashed with the Spanish governors and colonists who vied for Pueblo labor, land, and loyalty. As a result, the Pueblo peoples received notoriously mixed messages. Back to me. By the late 1620s, the growing cadre of padres, as it were, was led by Fray Alonso de Benavides, whose writings provide much of the surviving narrative for the period. Historians guard their trust for Fray Alonso, insofar as he was, to some significant degree, writing propaganda back to Spain by, for example, grossly overestimating the number of indigenous converts to Christianity on his watch. Presumably, he was both promoting his own accomplishments and making the case for more financial support and friars for the region. That said, Fray Alonso's descriptions of the cultural and social practices of the Pueblo Indians are for the most part credible, in part because they are transparently disapproving. 
Freyalanza's narratives are also, to some degree, internally inconsistent. He claims great success in conversion and practice, and at the same time recounts the martyring of his own friars, including in various gruesome ways. In Kessel's account, quote, At the Zuni Pueblo of Hawika, however, on a Sunday in February 1632, Benavides reported when their impatient young missionary called the converted and baptized Indians to mass, they all rose in rebellion and attacked him in a body, smashing his head with their clubs in order to prevent him from preaching the word of God to them any longer, and they inflicted many cruelties on him. Five days later, another friar, who had earlier survived being hit over the head and dragged around the plaza of Picarus Pueblo, appeared at Zuni, and they killed him too. Another older, more mature Franciscan, who with several companions had volunteered for service in the Hopi Mesas, a rugged 250 miles west of Santa Fe, also died a martyr. According to Benavides, this friar learned enough of the Hopi language to impress and convert many of the natives. Challenged to a test by hostile Hopi headmen at the Pueblo of Awatovi, the friar was reported to have cured a Hopi boy blind since birth. Here Benavides alluded to the gospel precedent of faith healing the blind, thereby winning over the crowd and exasperating the native priests. Since they dared not dispose of him openly, they allegedly resorted instead to poison. The friar had not, apparently, built up a resistance to iocane powder. Some of you will get that reference. Anyway, this last point's important. The Pueblo Indians of the region were manifestly divided in their attitude toward Christianity and the friars, and their own priests were understandably hostile and would do what they could to resist conversions to the Spanish religion. The old religion would not give way easily to the new. And even in the supposedly most converted places, the Indian religious leaders would do their best to resist the Spanish. There were therefore periodic revolts, some aimed at churches and their friars, and some provoked by the more exploitative civilian government in the seven decades between the founding of Santa Fe and the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. One such moment of resistance was the Jemez Revolt of 1623, which you can locate by searching for the Jemez, J-E-M-E-Z, historical site in Google Maps. It is more or less at the intersection of lines stretching north from Albuquerque and west from Santa Fe. The Pueblo at that site was known as Gisewa. Hoping I'm pronouncing that right. At the time of the revolt there, Gisewa was a big Pueblo village for the region. And if Spanish accounts are to be believed, there were hundreds if not thousands of Christian converts in the region of the Pueblo. Some were no doubt devoted, and others were going along half-heartedly. The mission of San Jose de los Jimes sat in a hill above the village. It had been founded in 1621 and stood as high as four stories. It included a church, sacristy, kitchen, storerooms, animal pens, and perhaps a smithy. Matthew Barber, writing for the Jemez Historical Site, characterized it as one of the biggest and most elaborate Franciscan missions built in New Mexico. Its walls enclosed an interior space of 335 square meters. 
The exterior walls were almost 40 feet high, and at the base, they were more than six feet thick. In the back of the church, there was a three-story octagonal bell tower rising to 50 feet above the church floor. There were brilliantly colored murals painted in red, yellow, blue, green, and white. There were European designs, checkerboard patterns and fleur-de-lis, and Indian, including the pictures of native plants and wild game. It would only survive two years. Now let's go to Barber's account, quote, Exactly what caused the Jemez to revolt in 1623 is unknown. Local lore of the Jemez people tells of Fray Geronimo de Zarate Salmaron requiring the Jemez of the surrounding villages to attend Sunday Mass at Gisewa. This included the large farming center known as Amaxumqua, or Old Anthill Place, atop Virgin Mesa. The people of Amaxumqua did as instructed, utilizing hiking sticks to make the steep descent into the valley. Upon reaching the church, they discarded the sticks and entered. The priests saw this as a sign of submission before God and allowed the pile to build as a means of demonstrating the sway he had over his flock. Weeks passed, and the pile grew. When the moment was right, the Jemez set the pile of walking sticks on fire, and the mission burned. Back to me. I think that displays an incredibly subtle understanding on the part of the Indians of the motivations of the priest. They seemed to know he would leave the sticks to pile up. Now let's go to Professor Matthew Liebman, whose paper... At the Mouth of the Wolf, the archaeology of 17th century Franciscans in the Jemez Valley of New Mexico reconstructs what must have happened from the physical record. Try to envision how archaeologists would learn about this. Quote, Excavators discovered a telltale layer of charred wood and ash when they removed the fill from San Jose's nave, testifying to the destruction of the church. Apparently the Jemez residents of Gisewa set fire to Zarate Salmaran's celebrated temple in an apparent protest against the Franciscans' presence. Flames spilled across the ceiling toward the entrance of the church, engulfing the giant wooden doorway. When the lintel's beam back finally gave way, the balcony above it crashed to the ground. The choir loft crumbled too, further fueling the immolation. The windowsills turned to ash, collapsing the giant lateral clerestory windows in on themselves. Finally, the fire gnawed its way through the tree trunk of Vigas. That's the term for a rustic wooden beam in a pueblo. One by one, the roof caved, bringing down the parapets with it. With its scalp smoldering on the floor, Blue sky poured into the church to illuminate the charred murals. A uniform dusty black replaced their formerly dazzling colors. Back to me. There are several things that might be said about this. First, the mission of San Jose de los Jemez was an extraordinary architectural achievement given the resources of its time. As high and comprehensively as the Pueblo Indians were able to build, this was something else entirely. Second, Franciscan as the design and vision for the mission were, 
It could not have been constructed without the willing and even enthusiastic participation of local Indians. The Spanish were just a couple of friars. They didn't coerce or enslave the Pueblo Indians into building the church. They converted them, to some degree, shared the vision, and motivated them. And yet, notwithstanding that, there's the third irrefutable point, that having built the church, quite possibly out of faith or a shared vision, the local Indians burned it down. Of course, we cannot know whether the same Indians who built the church conspired to destroy it, or if social pressure within the tribe was such that they dared not leak the plot to the friars even if they objected to it. Pride in the construction of the mission and resentment of it probably mixed together in a stew with Indian religious leaders doing what they could to defend their old-time religion. Eventually, attitudes apparently shifted enough to tip them into revolt, professions of faith notwithstanding. Who knows why? Maybe it was some slight that the friars did not intend or even understand. As grand as the mission of San Jose de los Hemos was, and as short as its time on this earth, there were missions all over the region built with the help of the native faithful. Many would survive for decades only to be destroyed in the 1680 revolt. The easternmost outpost of the Pueblo country on the Picos River is a leading example. There, the able young friar Andres Juarez, a former musketeer who had given up soldiering for God, came to the Pueblo in 1622. The locals had been building a huge series of buildings since 1450, before Columbus. Also there, a previous friar had, possibly out of zeal, cracked down on local religious practices. Now let's go to John Kessel's description. Quote, The people of Picos guarded the natural route of trade and war between the agricultural Pueblo Indians of the Rio Grande Valley and the buffalo-hunting nomads of the Great Plains. Although it was not a center of cultural innovation like Chaco Canyon or Mesa Verde, the fortress Pueblo of Picos nevertheless dominated the frontier between two worlds. As gatekeepers, the Pueblo's occupants profited from the export of crop surpluses, turquoise, as well as the import of Buffalo hides, tanned skins, dried meat, flint knives and scrapers, bow wood, and human captives. Among the most exposed of Pueblo peoples, they had also suffered fearsome attacks from the plains in times of famine and war. Both commerce and war drew Spaniards. Friar Juarez trod softly among the Picos. He had inherited both the start of a massive new church and the ill feeling caused by his predecessor. The previous padres had smashed Pico's idols and clashed with a traditional Pueblo religious leader named Moiseo. Several foot-tall human figurines unearthed by archaeologists in the 20th century had been carefully pieced back together by Pico's residents and hidden as sacred relics. A milder sword who immediately began learning words in their Toa language, Juarez swept the reluctant community up in his vision, vigorously renewing the ambitious building project. Back to me. The permanent church Juarez would build would be huge. To be fair, fire codes weren't as stringent in 1622, so the mud-brick church was capable of holding the 2,000 residents of the Pueblo, 
and even the Plains Apaches, who would come in the fall to trade and socialize. Construction took three years, and in Kessel's words, there was little need of coercion. For three years, weather permitting, the Picos Church construction site was the best show in the colony. A combination of volunteer Indian labor and new Spanish technology made for a remarkable structure. Yoked oxen hauled massive 50-foot tree trunks to the site on axles with wheels. Spanish steel in the hands of Indian craftsmen shaped them into beams and decorated them with carvings. And ropes and pulleys elevated the beams into place atop adobe brick walls. The Indians had known how to make sun-dried bricks, but they'd not learned to make them a standard size. The Spanish built molds of 20 by 9 by 3 inches, and eventually Indian workers would shape and dry 300,000 uniform bricks. The final building would be 150 feet long, supported by buttresses, and there would be a structure resembling a Pueblo Kiva, a ceremonial room, to blur the transition to the European god. Kessel says it was the grandest building north of New Spain. The aforementioned Father Benavides, who'd often exaggerated, described it as a very magnificent church of unique architecture and beauty, capable of holding the entire population of the Pueblo. For the longest time, this was thought to be one of his exaggerations. The grand old church at Picos would be destroyed in the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, and a much smaller church was built over its foundation in the 18th century. As the soil piled up over the centuries, all traces of the old church disappeared. It was only in 1967, when a National Park Service archaeologist uncovered the old foundation and the surrounding artifacts, that Benavides, who had so often blown smoke, was found to have been telling the truth in this case. These are but glimpses of a uniquely American society. Pueblo and ecclesiastical that lived in New Mexico for 70 years before it would be entirely reset by the Pueblo Revolt. The relationship between the Europeans and the indigenous peoples in this context was very different from the English Protestant engagement with Algonquin and Iroquoian tribes in Virginia and New England, and even between the Spanish and the Indians in Florida. The long 70 years was punctuated by occasional uprisings. Those we know about include the Jemez Revolt in 1623, and there were local killings and arson from time to time and other poorly documented local revolts at various points. And yet, as John Kessel points out, history doesn't record the normal everyday lives of the friars, Spanish settlers, and local Indians. Here's how he put it, a passage that will be familiar to those of you who recently listened to episode 51. During the 17th century, as Pueblo Indians and Spaniards contended and compromised in a marginal environment, Spanish colonialism did not produce unrelieved tragedy. Abuses occurred, to be sure, from rapes, murders, and dispossessions to minor swindles. And because Spaniards ruled, they were more likely to go unpunished. Pueblo Indians, for their part, killed Spaniards, among them unarmed missionaries, women, and children, in addition to contriving more subtle ways of obstructing the colonial regime, misinterpreting their missionaries' words, absenteeism, foot-dragging, idols behind altars, or parody of notable Spaniards, 
Most days, however, the sun rose and set on face-to-face cooperation for economic gain, advantage in war, and even marriages and foot races. No one intended the devastation wrought by alien disease. Yet Spaniards and their livestock, coughing, spitting, and expelling bodily matter, became vectors. Smallpox, measles, typhus, and influenza struck periodically, slashing the Pueblo population by 80 to 90 percent from the late 16th to the mid-18th century. Native peoples who had withstood violence, cultural collapse, and regeneration before contact with Europeans, often by moving about in search of favored niches in their arid surroundings, now found themselves pinned down. The essential trade-off was a more reliable and varied food supply. Domestic animals and new crops, along with the Spaniards' suite of metal tools and agricultural techniques, proved for the most part beneficial. Unfortunately, no one cared to record the ordinary days when Pueblo and Spaniards laughed together, repaired a fallen wall, watered the sheep, or prepared for a buffalo hunt. While such mundane happenings went largely unnoticed, accounts of conflict, crime, and punishment fill the archives. At the same time, some Pueblo Indians, despite reduced numbers and mobility, sought to assimilate Spaniards, as previous generations had done with other wandering peoples who possessed useful tools or knowledge. And more than a few Spanish colonists mixed ungrudgingly with their Pueblo neighbors— Countless times during the centuries, Spaniards and Pueblos campaigned shoulder to shoulder against the common enemies of the kingdom, sharing the risks and spoils of war. Pueblos and Spaniards engaged in violence against each other only in exceptional cases. In contrast to the notoriety of such cases, much of life in the formative 17th century moved more quietly toward coexistence setting precedents for the well-known accommodations of later centuries. Back to me. Of course, the characterization of that time would change as historians brought new perspectives and archaeologists unearthed new discoveries. The weighing of the good and the bad is the work of history. Here is everywhere. That is, of course, quite different from revisiting history to win a political argument today, but we're not going to go into that again. You've heard me on that topic many times. This is a good place to stop right now. Thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends. Spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website thehistoryoftheamericans.com or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com Until next time. <laughs>